evening everyone I'm broadcasting live May 24th tonight's quote is an answer to an often voiced criticism of Buddhism and meditation practice in general they call meditation navel-gazing where you're just obsessed with yourself navel-gazing as though it's either useless or potentially narcissistic auto-erotic was what the Pope called it one of the previous popes yeah meditation gets a bad rap we think of it as an escape running away from your problems, a vacation, something you do at a spa or something, something like yoga. Now, not to, not to malign, or not to uh, speak badly of yoga, but I don't think meditation or meditation that we do is much like yoga, even though people often equate the two or, or compare the two. Nonetheless, not speaking about yoga, meditation, Buddhist meditation, most sincerely is not an escape or a vacation. Right? <laughs> My meditator's nodding. It's a hard work. It's training. Anyone who's come through this course can tell you. It's a lot more than you usually signed up for. Usually not what we had expected coming in and that's good it's not if, if it were what you expected then it wouldn't be working and that's that's an important point because it's enlightened we're talking about enlightenment we're talking about waking up and by waking up we mean waking up to truths that we didn't know we didn't know how could it not surprise you how could it not shock you how could it not challenge you if it if it, if it didn't you couldn't really say that it was something new or something something that would change you something that would bring about positive change or negative change could be similar it's not to say that the change or the, the hard work is that all hard work is necessarily positive but meditation is hard work nonetheless the criticism being leveled here is that he, he, he makes a, a comparison, as Brahman does. He says they uh, perform sacrifices to gods, I guess. And so that benefits many people. He's talking about general religious practice, like putting aside this Brahman's really ridiculous ideas of what is beneficial, like they would kill, they would slaughter animals or they would sacrifice butter to the fire you know a lot of silly things and say that was wholesome but let's look at wholesome activity like people who are um, who, who work for social justice or people who run charities soup kitchens or teachers these kind of things people who help the world and they say, well, that's true goodness. What is this meditation? And he says, the meditation, okay, we can, we can accept that it helps you. 
but that's all it does is help you. It's only good for yourself. It says, I say that such a person is practicing something that benefits only himself. Which to anyone who's put sincere or serious thought into the matter uh, certainly must sound ridiculous. But for, for people who are unsure or who are new to spirituality, it sounds kind of convincing. Yeah, why am I wasting my time in this meditation center doing things that only benefit myself? And uh, agreed that there are meditations that I would say for the most part only benefit yourself. If you enter into a trance, a bliss state, a peaceful state, that would be really only benefiting yourself. And, and in the end, not benefiting yourself substantially anyway because it's temporary. But this is an important point because it helps clear up this misunderstanding and this misconception and this prejudice we have, preconception that we have that meditation should be pleasant, meditation should be uh, enjoyable. It can be, of course, even this meditation can be at times enjoyable, but that's not what it's supposed to be. It's actually supposed to better you, make you, a, you could say, a better person. But, but more technically, just to make you more pure, more clear, more mindful, more wise, more good. And if you hear these things and then you ask yourself, is this not beneficial to other people? You could say, well, how is that beneficial to other people? And so we can take a look at those people who try to help the world, right? For social justice or, or all these things I mentioned and um, they're not all this they're not all equal right they're not all equally successful many of them burn out there's a high uh, in the environmental movement which my father was very much involved in he recently told me I think there's a very high burnout rate and people who are into social justice will tell you that they flame bright and burn out quick and then they're on to something else that their passion doesn't last. It's because they're not trained. It's because they don't have this ability, this power. And you don't really realize the power and the strength and the clarity of mind that comes from meditation until you actually do it. That's why I say it surprises you surprises us in how challenging it is, but it also surprises us in how deep it goes and how fundamentally it changes us, it strengthens us, straightens us out. You come out of this feeling all crooked and like you were all bent out of shape and that you've just been wrenched back into more or less straight state. That's how it feels. It feels like you're untying knots. That's how it should feel if you're doing it properly. You're untying knots, like you're working out kinks, like you're straightening out the crookedness in your mind. Your mind is all bent out of shape. I mean, bent out of shape is a simplification. It's all messed up, right? Mixed up, because what we do doesn't have rhyme or reason. Much of it is just based on whim. Our habits are not well thought out. There, we, We've been working on our habits since we were children. How could we know what was right and what was wrong? And so we go through life kind of with a half-assed understanding. Half-assed, probably not the technical term, 
uh, half-baked, not fully formed understanding of what's right and what's wrong. And so we make lots of mistakes. We do right sometimes, we figure some things out. We all have varying degrees of wisdom, so we use that. But it's not fully formed, it's not it's not coherent it's all mixed up and so meditation is quite simple and it, it's, it's not something you can doubt because it, it, it's a quite a simple activity it's straightening everything out straightening out our minds working to understand our desires our aversions our, our conceits and our arrogance and our views and opinions and overcome all of the delusion that we have inside. Meditation really straightens us out and there's nothing better for other people than to be straightened out yourself. If you're straight yourself, first of all, if everyone did this, there would be no need to help anyone else, right? If everyone practiced meditation, then no one would need to teach meditation. No one would need to help the world. We have more than enough for everyone. And even enough is not really meaningful because the human state is just an artifice. We don't really need all of the things that a human has. We can give up this human state and go to a purer state. We can change the whole fabric of reality. Yeah, maybe that's going too far for most people's understanding, but we can certainly change the world if we're all positive. But um, but more than just all being well inside, the, our interactions with others, how much suffering do we cause in the name of, of, of uh, bene beneficence, you know, trying to do good things? I mean, the, the, the Spanish Inquisition was ostensibly meant for benefit, you know. Hitler had, you know, an idea of beneficence that he was actually helping the world by culling the the lesser right but these are extreme examples but we're all in this way we try to help the world and we end up yelling and screaming and getting frustrated and burning out and we still get addicted and attached to our desires that mess up and color our work and our, our beliefs and so so this is this should be a really a this sort of argument is 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 voiced far too often by people who clearly if they voice it clearly have not thought or investigated the topic at all it's easily debunked but uh, only if you've taken the time to think and to work and to follow the meditation practice to see the benefit to see that it's not just navel gazing Although, you know, the truth is right at our navel. If you do watch your stomach rising and falling, you can change the world. And you can become enlightened just by watching your stomach rise and fall. It's quite profound how, how simple it is. Anyway, so that's a bit of Dhamma for tonight. I think that's all I have to say about that. Look at some of the questions. Okay, question verse 37. I have a, a part-time job, live at home with my mom and dad, not a very complicated person, 
is it not advisable to live a simple life and still practice meditation? Of course. I mean, that's what monastic life is supposed to be. The, the, the monk life is, I don't know what verse 37 was. I can't think that far back. But uh, living simply is, is great. So if you, the idea of becoming a monk is, the claim is it's the simplest way of life. You put aside everything just to cultivate spirituality. Okay, more question, long question. I've been having doubts as to whether I actually want to free my life of suffering and desire. Well, they're two different things. Desire wouldn't be a problem if it didn't lead to suffering. Sounds quite strange and ignorant. Well, it's natural. Most of us, this is this was the Dhammapada verse last night. I just re-recorded re it. It'll be up soon. So maybe you can watch that. Maybe that'll help. You know, that suffering and desire and all the things that go along with them are part of the typical human experience. And in some way, I feel that I would be missing out if I tried to remove them from my, my life. So many of the greatest human achievements have been inspired or motivated by these things. What would you say about this? It's a very good question. I mean, it's basically the Dhammapada from last night. We do things for, uh, well, it's not based, it's, it's along in the same vein. We do things in the world, we all have these things in the world. We want to achieve things, we want to obtain things. We have many desires. Um, I mean, the first thing I can say before getting really into it is uh, that it's, it's not a reason to desire. Your desire is not a reason to desire. You see what I mean? You say, you say, I don't, I'm not sure if I want to give up desire. It's kind of funny because, of course, you don't. That's what desire means, right? We desire it. Therefore, you know, of course we don't want to get rid of it. So that, so that kind of points to the, the means of overcoming the problem. You can't approach desire directly. This is why the Buddha, he put desire in a special category. Ajahn Tong brought this up, brought this up in really drew my attention to this. The difference between anger, for example, anger and greed. Anger is something you give up. You know it's bad. It feels bad. It's not something we want. We don't want to be angry. But greed, greed is something that can be pleasant. So manasa sahagatang, it can come associated with pleasure. And so it's something that you have to train yourself out of. It's not something you can just say, no, I don't want. It's not something that we can approach directly. But this is why we have to separate desire and suffering. Don't worry about desire. Don't worry about the things that you want. That's that's not not useful. It's not not where we have to focus. Let's not focus on that. Okay, you want all these things? Fine. Let's look at the fact that you're suffering. Why are you suffering? Let's learn about that. Let's study that. And this helps you not get mixed up because desire, when the mind has desire in it, it it's in, unable, incapable of seeing the detriment, seeing the problem. This is what I was saying about the Dhammapada. It's not rational. You can't, you can't convince yourself not to want something. The mind is in a state that it won't hear those arguments. Uh, so that, that's not where you, you put your, your attention. When uh, you focus on the suffering you know, and, and try to learn why you're suffering and try to experience and see What's going on that's causing you, your suffering? 
then you really can break it apart. Then you can see things rationally and clearly. And you can see how your desires are causing you stress. It's not intellectual. You'll just feel kind of uh, exhausted, wanting the same thing again and again, getting it and then not being satisfied, not getting it and being dissatisfied, and again and again and again. And eventually you get bored of it. This is why, this is how spiritual people are. Someone who is very spiritual will feel like this. They'll feel generally bored of life. Like they've tried everything and it just, they saw through it. This is a sign of, of high-mindedness. People who are depressed and want to kill themselves, often it comes from a sort of a wisdom, an understanding that you know, there's just nothing to life. Life is... In the end, just a game, you know. And you, you play the game enough, you get tired of it. Now, most of us are not tired of it. We're still keen on going after it. And that won't come unless you meditate. Right? And it starts with what is most coarse and most obvious. People who are addicted to really unpleasant things like killing or stealing or lying or cheating or drugs or alcohol. Who are addicted to those things are are pretty well able to let go of them because they're intense suffering. Now, attachment to music or food or something like that is much harder to see, and most of us can't or won't ever see it. But when you look, the truth is, regardless of whether we'll see it or not, or whether we want it or not, the truth is, when you look clearly, you will give it up because you will see undeniably you, know, you don't have to be convinced, and you don't have to convince yourself. You will see without any doubt, any shred of doubt, that it's not worth it. It's not beneficial. It's not pleasant. It doesn't lead to happiness. It doesn't make you a better person. It doesn't make you a happier person. And the funny thing about these things is, if they did, in general, make us happier people, then we would see ourselves constantly getting happier as we pursued these things, which, in fact, is not the case. There are things in life that do make us happier, but they are not seeking out pleasure. You don't become happier the more you listen to music. When you listen to the music that you like, you're happy, and if you vary it enough so that it's not repetitive, your, mind is con your brain is constantly stimulated, you can maintain that. But you don't become happier. Food doesn't make you happier. Sex doesn't make you happier. It makes you happy, pleasant, pleasured in that moment. Not happier as a person, unhappier. It, if you, if you, for a, a hedonist, a person who is in, intent upon this, have them stop and put them in a room where they no longer have these things. See how they fare compared to a person, an ordinary person. You know, they, they behave very much like a drug addict. This is why jail is torture for so many of us. There was this sensory deprivation chamber that they're talking about where you can't hear anything. It's a perfect silence. And they were saying people couldn't stay in there for more than 45 minutes. They just started to go insane. Now I can imagine it has an effect on the brain. It's disorienting, but most of that is simply because we desire stimulus. Anyway, so I hope that helps.
When a person sleeps too few hours, they may feel drowsy, forgetful, have difficulty being aware, have difficulty being mindful. It can feel a little like being drunk. But in Buddhism, we are taught to limit our sleep. How are we? How do we understand this apparent conflict? Well, the reason we feel so drowsy and drunk is because of our well, because of our bodies. Uh, being accustomed to sleeping, but also not not even just that, also because of how tired out we become from our mental activity. If you're meditating intensely, you don't even need to sleep. There are people who go days, weeks, months without sleep. Your body acclimatizes to it, so that drunk feeling reduces and eventually doesn't even arise. Uh, and also your mind becomes more refined and more streamlined. Uh, in the beginning, it's it's also quite useful, and and in the long term, it's it's useful in terms of pushing yourself. You know, when you push yourself uh, beyond what you're comfortable with, and most of us are not comfortable with sleeping a little, then it agitates you. You're able to see your reactions, and you're able to assess your reactions. You're able to see what reactions are wholesome and which are unwholesome. If you always get what you want, you'll never come to see the problem with desire because, you know, you're with the wanting, because you're always getting. And you say, well, that's good. I want, and therefore I get. When I want, I get. So when you start depriving yourself of things that you want, sleep being a very good example, you start to see how we're just like baby cows crying out for our mother's milk. So you want to train the cow to grow up to be a good, well, an ox. You know, in, in, in old times they used ox and they had to train the ox. But a baby ox was kind of useless. So you had to train it. You had to take it away from its mother. Kind of cruel, I know. But in the long term it was for the betterment of the ox's training. Now our minds are, it's maybe cruel to ox, but it's not cruel to our minds. Our minds we do have to train they are something that it's necessary. Without training, our minds, as I said, they're all mixed up. A natural mind state is a chaotic mind state. It doesn't work for one's benefit at all times. You might say it's natural, and you say, well, you know, isn't that the way of life? Isn't that the way of humans? Sure. And look at the world. <laughs> look at the way of humans, what it's brought. It doesn't have to be this way. Just because it has been this way, or just because it seems like evolution has made it this way, is in no way indicative of that it should be this way, or that it's better this way. In fact, if anything human beings have shown in terms of evolution, is that evolution was in no way a, a, a God gift, a gift from God. It was just a random, you know, chaotic sort of um, way of of promoting ge certain genes, you know, certain genetic material. And being human has showed us that we can get beyond our genetics, beyond evolution, beyond natural selection. We can be compassionate to cripples and sick and uh, to all types of people who would, in a survival of the fittest type of society, just not survive. Anyway, so we got a little off track there, but... Uh, yeah, I think that's a fairly comprehensive answer. There are several reasons to challenge you, but also to uh, refine, force you to refine your mind 
and that eventually those things go away. Is Nibbana the greatest human achievement? I mean, you sound like humans sound like you're saying you're you're asking whether humans created Nibbana. The greatest achievement a human can achieve, but it's not something that humans created or something. But uh, yeah, it's the greatest thing a human could ever achieve is Nibbana, for sure. It's the only thing that's a real benefit. Because it's permanent, it's satisfying. It's not controllable, but it's not important. Okay, still we're about 50-50, people who meditate, people who don't meditate. If your name is in orange, that means you don't meditate. I'd like to see a greater percentage. Anyway, that's all for tonight. Wishing you all a good night. See you all next time.